welcome to another episode of the ACES Cast. My name is Gunas Katulina, and in this podcast, I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Center for European Studies about their ongoing projects, academic journey, and favorite books. My guest today is Beste Schleyen. Hi, Beste. Hello, Gunas. Beste is a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Amsterdam. Before joining the UFA in 2014, she obtained her PhD degree from the University of Tübingen in Germany. Beste's research interests lie in international relations and critical security studies. In particular, she has been working on the European Union engagement with the southern Mediterranean region. Beste, in 2014, you have received a prestigious Veni grant from the Netherlands Scientific Organization to examine Turkey's governance of migration and borders. And probably as a researcher, you've heard variants of this question many times, but you know, a lot of people are interested how we choose our topics and you know, what sorts of inspirations we have. So what was your path to a Veni grant? Could you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, thank you, Gulnas. Uh, thank you, first of all, uh, for inviting me uh, to be part of this uh, podcast. Uh, I think it's a great initiative and uh, I have already listened to uh, the podcasts that are available and you have done a very good job. Well, thanks for inviting me. Regarding your question, let me start uh, with my background. I am Turkish uh, and have lived in Europe for 15 years now. Um, I finished my undergraduate studies in 2005, uh, which is the year when EU accession negotiations with Turkey started uh, following the positive evaluation of um, recent uh, Turkish political reforms back then. So there was therefore um, high hopes that Turkey would soon become part of the European Union. And in this respect, education was a key area of attention for both parties, um, as different degree programs on European studies were opened in Turkey um, so that people get acquainted with um, EU affairs um, and prepare for um, the future membership. Um, At the same time, uh, people also traveled abroad with uh, national and international scholarships uh, for the same reason. And among these people that I know, some were planning to continue their careers in academia, uh, whereas some hoped uh, uh, to become the future diplomats and bureaucrats uh, in in this particular uh, field. So 15 uh, years from that moment, uh, the membership has not materialized for Turkey, uh, but remains a possibility. Um, All this is also the reason why there are so many Turkish academics currently um, uh, working on uh, EU-Turkey relations because of the background that uh, I have outlined. Um, So I was one of these uh, people, but also not. Um, I have a similar story of uh, going to Germany to uh, do NMA in European studies, which was followed by a PhD in politics again in Germany. So back then, my interest was not in EU-Turkey relations, but on EU external action and conflict resolution. So I I wrote my both thesis on uh, EU policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. So after finishing my PhD, which was 2014, um, I was employed at Access Europe, which came before ACES. I was a postdoctoral researcher within uh, Access Europe for one year. So during that time, I focused on my publications, uh, but also developed ideas for my new uh, projects. So I felt that it was time to move on. It was time to uh, choose another uh, area of academic focus. And in that respect, I uh, recall one uh, conversation at the departmental coffee machine at the UFA, which was actually a turning point uh, for me. So our UFA colleague, uh, Mehdi Aminek, uh, who is specialized in the geopolitics of energy, was asking me what I was uh, at that time working on. 
Uh, and then he suggested that Turkey and energy issues have a lot of uh, geopolitical significance. Uh, so since I was uh, in search for a new topic, I took Mehdi's suggestion very seriously and started making some readings. However, after making the, these readings, I wasn't particularly inspired by, by them. Uh, however, this conversation was helpful uh, because while I was doing these readings, um, I found out that, um, yeah, there were very, very interesting, um, in, interesting studies on recent ch changes in Turkish foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, and the political and economic model behind Turkey's ambitions uh, in this particular geography. So this was early 2014. I was a fresh uh, graduate from the PhD, a postdoc uh, in Amsterdam. So uh, during that time, I was also following the news on the growing number of uh, Syrian displaced people in Turkey who were running away from the civil war in their country. So the Turkish government's rhetoric back then was largely positive, uh, while there were already tensions in the wider society um, with an increasing rhetoric of Syrians being a burden on the economy. I mean, similar discourses that we see in Europe, migrants are taking away our jobs, they should have fought in the country. But in the Turkish case, there is also this Orientalist framings of the Arab, uh, which is deeply embedded um, in Turkish identity construction. And there were also problems, structural issues uh, with regards to Syrians' access to regular, regular employment, housing, education, etc. Uh, so back then, border crossings into the EU from Turkey were already happening, but not in the, in the ways that they would be framed alarming and exceptional by both parties, Turkey and the EU. Nevertheless, my prediction was that this could change any time for the reasons uh, that I outlined, uh, the domestic politics and the uh, citizens' attitude towards Syrians and Syrians' difficulties in the country. My prediction was that uh, Syrians would eventually move towards Europe. I then delved into that literature and found out that there is indeed a rich scholarship on Turkey, Europe and migration. So topics like Turkish immigration to Europe in the 1960s and 1970s and related topics of family uh, reunification and integration. There is also a literature on transit migration through Turkey to Europe, and more recently on the externalization of EU migration and border policies um, to third countries so that the latter uh, prevents uh, transit uh, border crossings into Europe. However, what I observed in the literature is that um, there was a gap as regards to how Turkey governs migration uh, at its borders on an everyday basis. This I found really surprising uh, when considering the very advanced debates, especially in Europe, on everyday border control, including by transnational actors such as Frontex. So I was already familiar with these debates known as uh, critical security studies, also because my PhD applied uh, critical security insights to the EU's engagement with Israel and Palestine. So my research idea was there, I would combine my existing theoretical expertise with an empirical gap. So I applied for two grants in 2014. One was uh, the Marie Curie grant, um, and one was uh, Veni, um, as you mentioned, Gulnas. And I received both uh, in early 2015, and eventually I opted for the letter. 
Yeah, we're going to for sure return today to the topic of Turkey-EU relations. But before that, I would like to ask you just another question concerning your research. Because as we talked a little bit before, you told me that you've conducted an intensive fieldwork in Turkey. And could you tell us a bit more how you collected your data and what kind of challenges you faced in the process? Yeah, that's a very good question. So as I already said, my research focuses on the daily governance of migration in Turkey at European Union borders. This, uh, of course, requires uh, fieldwork at border sites uh, to collect data through interviews and participant observation. So my fieldwork already started in September 2015 when the so-called refugee crisis happened. So back then I was in Izmir, uh, which is my hometown. It was an exceptional time for the city, as the city center was populated by a large refugee populations who slept in the mosques or on the streets. You could see locals distributing food and drinks. Uh, you could see the police trying to uh, manage the situation. And the numbers were really high. And back then, 20-25 boats were departing at the same time from the Turkish coast uh, to the Greek islands. During that time, I was able to make interviews with the police and uh, other state officials. And uh, this was followed by fieldwork in other border cities, uh, land borders with Greece and Bulgaria, where I had the opportunity to speak uh, also with uh, other state officials, including the Turkish Coast Guards. Um, regarding your question, I have had mixed experiences uh, with fieldwork. The access is a key issue, especially in security studies as secrecy is the norm rather than the exception. So my first field work stretched over two months, uh, which involved visits to uh, ministries in uh, Ankara and also travels to um, uh, border towns, uh, where my first activity was to go to the governorate or the police department and to say that I am in the city and this is the reason why I'm in the city. And I asked uh, for some contacts. So I also traveled to border gates and introduced myself to state officials um, who were first uh, very skeptical and didn't want to talk, again, for secrecy issues. And also border matters are uh, important uh, topics. Turkey also has a very centralized and hierarchical state structure, and state officials do not tend to take uh, initiatives on their own without taking an order coming from above. That said, I managed to build trust with time and was able to speak to key people in the field. Um, however, uh, your own efforts are one thing, but there can be also unpredictable uh, events um, happening during your fieldwork. And in my case, one such event was the 2016 military coup attempt in Turkey. So a few days before the coup, I made an official request uh, for fieldwork access Uh, to um, to some uh, some Turkish coast guards, um, which was uh, unfortunately rejected a few days after the coup attempt. So this, of course, caused a delay in uh, in data collection. But I was given fieldwork access a year uh, later. Um, uh, however, we can say that uh, fieldwork uh, can be messy and unpredictable, and uh, yeah, we cannot we cannot uh, always control. But overall, I can say that uh, the fieldwork delivered good results based on, uh, as I said, trust and also perseverance being uh, there on site um, uh, in order to build this trust and get access. 
Yeah, during your studies, um, I don't know if you can call you lucky, but indeed you were just on time to experience these all many things happening in Turkey and especially on the border between Turkey and the EU. So let us go a little bit into the detail of this relationship. March this year marked the fifth anniversary of the agreement between the European Union and Turkey. To remind our listeners, the agreement from 2016 implied that irregular migrants attempting to enter Greece would be returned to Turkey and Ankara will take steps to prevent new migratory roads from opening. In exchange, the European Union agreed to reduce visa restrictions for Turkish citizens, pay 6 billion euros in aid to Turkey for Syrian migrant communities, and re-energize stalled talks regarding Turkey's accession to the European Union. In hindsight, Beste, did this agreement help to give a new meaning to Turkey-EU relations if we assume that the previous framework defined by accession negotiations has essentially failed? Um, yeah, this is a good question and I think it gives the opportunity to clarify uh, some of the misunderstandings uh, which I think are also reproduced in the media discourse. Uh, so Turkey and the EU have a long-term cooperation in the field of migration and borders. So uh, while most attention is drawn to the 2016 uh, Turkey EU statement, this statement did not necessarily start a process from scratch, but consolidated an already existing partnership. So Turkey is an EU candidate country, and as other candidate countries, it is required to fulfill so-called uh, Copenhagen criteria uh, to become eligible for membership. So reforms also apply to border and uh, migration management, which is a process started uh, way before 2016. Um, coming back to your question, I would say no. The previous framework uh, defined by accession negotiations did not fail, but then there was a need for the 2016 statement um, because the so-called deal was prepared and announced to address the situation framed as the crisis by the European Union. So what we see in the so-called refugee crisis is that one million people crossed into the EU. However, at the same time, Turkey and the EU had already signed a readmission agreement in 2013. So this agreement would eventually come into effect in parallel with the commencement of the visa liberalization dialogue. So the 2016 deal did not promise a visa facilitation out of nowhere. It was already within the framework of ongoing negotiations. Um, this, however, tells us one thing. So the rhetoric of unprecedentedness in migration research is an important problem because since the phenomenon is highly visible and unmanageable, like during the refugee crisis of 2015, the argument is that nothing like this happened before. And with this, I mean both uh, human mobility, but also its management through international cooperation. This, however, is not correct. So 2016 is important, but it is not a watershed moment. Uh, but it is built on uh, the already uh, existing diplomatic and technical cooperation between the two sides. And indeed, we hear a lot about how the deal was received in the European Union, especially because, you know, there is a lot of uh, information written in languages, in European languages, accessible to many of our readers. But I can imagine that not everyone knows how the deal was received in Turkey. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Well, 2016 uh, also um, was um, an interesting year for Turkey, of course. A few months after the, 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 the deal uh, was announced, uh, Turkey experienced a military coup as well. So uh, the country also had uh, other domestic issues uh, to deal with. But with regard to the statement, I would say that 
like in any society, no society is monolithic. Uh, like any in an, any society, there are and there were different voices and arguments in this matter. So the, on the one hand, the government presented the deal as a kind of success, mostly by referring to the visa liberalization component, because there is also a particular segment of the society which expressed positive views because of this visa liberalization uh, dimension of the deal. But we talk about a minority group uh, in Turkey, people holding a passport uh, and uh, regularly traveling to Europe. I mean, we talk about not the majority of Turkish citizens, but only a small group of uh, people. So visa is a big obstacle to mobility for many, uh, well, I would say non-Western countries and Turkey is no exception. Um, however, on the other hand, we see that there was harsh criticism within Turkey that Turkey was becoming Europe's gatekeeper. And this argument was made by different groups, both by those who are engaged in migrant activism and uh, who also refer to uh, the normative uh, principles uh, and international uh, humanitarian principles, but also by those who are more hostile to refugee populations in the country. Uh, both of these uh, parties are also framed uh, this agreement as Turkey's consolidation of its position as Europe's gatekeeper. Yeah, the last year put a lot of pressure on the European-Turkey relationships. We had a COVID, uh, Turkey experienced serious economic crisis. But maybe you could summarize the main issues that limit cooperation and coordination between Turkey and the EU at the moment. Does a history play a role in this? Well, I can talk about border and migration control. So historically, um, Turkey has been very cautious and hesitant about uh, foreign intervention into domestic affairs. And this is mainly based on a historical trauma um, related to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, where uh, European capitulations enabled direct intervention by the outsiders into state internal matters. This is also why Turkey differs from uh, the EU's other interlocutors when it comes to international organizations' uh, presence in border and refugee governance. For example, refugee governance in Turkey is very centralized, and uh, the 2016 coup attempt resulted in the interruption of international humanitarian organizations' uh, activities in the country. So in border management, there is a highly militarized conception uh, of uh, borders and uh, territory, and this is especially true for the Aegean borders. For so the Aegean Sea, where most border crossings in 2015 and 16 happened, it, this, this geography is characterized by long-standing uh, bilateral disputes between Turkey and Greece over, for example, the continental shelf, airspace control, and the sovereignty over small uh, islets. So these conflicts have persisted despite the two countries' cooperation in international institutions, uh, such as NATO. Um, and the EU uh, integration process of Turkey made possible some moments of de-escalation in history, but recent years are primarily shaped by the rise of aggressive rhetoric and uh, conflictual claims uh, by both sides over this disputed territory. So what we see in the news is that there are regular dogfights between the two parties, fighter uh, jets, um, because of conflict, conflicting claims over airspace control, and that's happened during these dogfights. So due to this geopolitical history, Turkish border control has remained highly militarized. 
And this also explains, again, why Turkey is different from other Central Mediterranean countries in that there is no non-state actor within Turkish territorial waters to carry out border control. For example, we see that there are joint operations that the EU conducts, for example, uh, with Libyan authorities within Libyan territorial waters. The Turkish case is different. In Turkey, it's only Turkish state officials, not even Turkish humanitarian organizations, which are permitted to be uh, active in the Aegean Sea. So I would say that history indeed plays a very important role. Unfortunately, it's already the time to come to our final question about books. And today we talked a little bit about the present of uh, the European and Turkey relations and the past as well and how the history plays a role in this. In this context, could you tell us whose work has left a profound effect on you? Not particularly on Turkey relations, uh, which I find very Eurocentric, to be honest. And uh, in border and migration studies, two concepts dominate the debates. One is externalization and one is Europeanization. And I had struggles working with both concepts. And if you look at my publications, you wouldn't see these concepts because, yeah, I just couldn't uh, make sense of my empirical data to, uh, through these concepts. Um, why, I, why do I have struggles to work with these two concepts? Uh, because I think they assume an origin and directionality. They assume that policies and practices first emerge in Europe and are then disseminated to the outside. But I think this erases the third country's history. And I find it really highly problematic. So it's based on the assumption that it's only when the EU asked and paid for it um, do the states uh, start controlling their border. Um, this is not only illogical because borders are key state institutions of political authority and demarcation lines separating the inside uh, and uh, outside. But when you look at the Turkish case, these are also historically and empirically incorrect. Migration and borders have always been important uh, issues for, uh, for Turkey throughout history. So therefore, if you look at my uh, research, I mostly rested on critical security studies and political geography, uh, which for the most part helped me uh, circumvent the problems that I see in European studies. So in the context of my own research, uh, two books have been particularly influential, uh, especially recently. And I would say one uh, book is Gurminder Bambras, uh, Rethinking Modernity. And the second book is Alexander Anievas and Keram Shanjolu's co-authored uh, book, uh, which is called How the West Came to Rule. Well, both books are uh, very inspiring and they are conceptually and empirically rich accounts of uh, why a non-Eurocentric approach to uh, IR is extremely necessary and highly uh, urgent because our current epistemic tools, also in European studies, disguise more than uh, what they reveal. So I highly recommend these uh, two books uh, to the listeners. Thank you, Beste, for being with us today. We wish you a lot of luck in your research. Thank you, Gulnaz. Uh, thanks for the invitation again, and good luck with the podcast. Join us next time as we talk to Hido Snell about his project on private photography of Dutch bat in Srebrenica, Bosnian war, and literary translations. Stay tuned.